You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 53 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I will be talking to author, speaker and podcaster Lorenzo Haggerty. We will cover such subjects as Terence McKenna, MDMA, Vietnam, Burning Man and more. For me, this is a full circle somehow, because it was listening to Lorenzo's podcast, The Psychedelic Salon, that planted the seed in my mind to start doing my own podcast. Also, I am grateful to Lorenzo for making all those amazing Terence McKenna talks available to the public. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. So tell the audience and the listener a bit about who you are and what you do. Well, <laughs> I'm a 73-year-old uh, former naval officer, former lawyer, and uh, computer geek that uh, retired uh, actually in 99. I Accidentally, I took a leave of absence from my job as the internet evangelist for Horizon, and uh, I just never made it back. I moved out here to the West Coast and uh, got more involved in the psychedelic scene and Burning Man and all that. And uh, a little over 10 years ago, I, I uh, was messing around with technology. I wanted to learn how what podcasting was all about. It was just a few months old. And uh, so I, I did a couple uh, podcasts of, of some talks I'd given and a couple that McKenna had given, just uh, some podcasts I'd produced at Burning Man or some talks I'd produced at Burning Man. And and uh, I never really intended to keep going, but here I am now uh, uh, over almost 11 years later <laughs> with over 470 podcasts out there. So uh, it's just sort of accidentally uh happened and uh it's something i enjoy doing so uh, i do a podcast every week now and you play a lot of terence mckenna's talks yeah that uh i can't remember the year but it was uh, a couple of years after terence mckenna died his entire archive uh was destroyed by fire and so all of his stuff was lost his, his manuscripts and all that and uh, so I decided that, you know, I had a bunch of tapes that people had sent me. And so I thought, well, I'll at least uh, preserve some of his work by putting these recordings out there on the Internet. And I started doing that. And, and uh, then uh, through my friend Bruce Damer, uh, we got in touch with uh, Ralph Abraham, who is a, a mathematician here in California. And he and, and uh, Rupert Sheldrake uh, in from London had... Uh, uh, not London, but somewhere in the UK. The two of them and Terence McKenna did a series of trialogues, they called them. Uh, and so Ralph gave me, uh, oh, maybe 30 or 40 tapes of their trialogues. And I podcast those. And then people kept sending me tapes. And then eventually uh, the people that uh, were in charge of the Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary's archive, uh, gave me all of his uh, talks that had been digitized. And so, you know, basically uh, it, it started out as a collection, uh, sort of an audio uh, history collection of old psychedelic elders. But then I started producing the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man. And uh, those are all, you know, 
live <laughs> people, not dead people like Leary and McKenna. And uh, so uh, that has grown now to where, uh, in fact, just last uh, Monday, I podcast one by Kerry uh, 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 Corey Doctorow, who uh, uh, he's a writer and he he's working with EFF now. And so we're getting a lot of new voices. Uh, a lot of young women are getting involved in psychedelics. Uh, not It's not something new. There have always been a lot of women involved in psychedelics, but they've always been really in the background and quiet. And uh, a whole new generation of young women are, are coming to the foreground now and speaking up. And so I've been podcasting their talks, too. Uh, you know, basically, my format is... Uh, I'll, it, it's built around a talk that somebody has given and, or an interview somebody has done. And uh, I introduce it and I play it and then I make some comments afterwards. So it's a real simple format, but it's uh, been quite successful over the years. Yeah, I think your podcast was the first podcast I paid attention to. Uh, so uh, uh, I've listened to it for, for many years. I, I, I'm always been amazed that uh, you'd never run out of Terence McKenna talks because it seems to be a, you know like a, a never-ending supply of it. And I'm I'm very amazed that uh, people were smart enough to record when he was speaking. Yeah, you know, Terence was was unusual in the speaker uh, realm, I guess you'd call it. In that he uh, he let people make recordings as long as they didn't uh, commercialize them, and so he let he let people make uh, their record sort of like the Grateful Dead. They let everybody record it, and uh, people have over the years been sending me things. Uh, I still have maybe uh, oh maybe forty or fifty tapes here that I haven't even digitized yet or heard myself. So uh, over the next couple of years, I'll, I'll get all those out and. And basically, I just wanted a, a place on the web where all of the McKenna material and Leary material that I had uh, is out there available in the public. And uh, it's all up there, uh, you know, under uh, Creative Commons license so people can copy it and use it. And and uh, I put copies of all of my podcasts up on the Internet Archive, archive.org, so that, uh, you know, it's stored on three uh, continents and servers and three continents now. And so, uh, you know, all of all of those uh, people's works, uh, their audio works that we can come up with will be preserved that way. And and uh, that was the main intention of it, although it's, it's kind of expanded in more now. But uh, I did want to preserve uh, McKenna's works. And, you know, he was a controversial guy, but he was... Uh, very instrumental in bringing a lot of us uh, into the psychedelic community. I, I'm a latecomer, you know. I was, I was in my 40s before I even smoked dope. So, <laughs> I am a late bloomer, and uh, uh, you know. I, but without McKenna, I probably never would have uh, gotten involved in the community. And and uh, you know, he 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 had a lot of ideas that some people think were uh, kind of wild, including me. But on on the other hand, he never took himself as seriously as most of his audience. Did and he was more of a poet than a, than a scholar or anything else. But uh, he was one of the best read people I know and uh, ever met, actually. And and uh, he he uh, he just had a, a way to to make connections to things he'd read 10, 12 years ago, you know. And uh, had a great mind. He really had a great mind. What was it that made you go from a square to what you are now? Well, there's there's actually uh, if you go to uh, my main website psychedelicsalon.com, 
there's a, uh, a video of me on that front page called uh, Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. And uh, it's a 30-minute interview I did for some filmmakers who are doing a project about the Stark Club. And uh, that's that was where I was in Dallas. I was in Dallas uh, in the 80s, which turned out to be ground zero for when MDMA, or at the time it was called Ecstasy, when it hit the street. And uh, just through some strange coincidences, I happened to come in con or contact with the uh, the guy who really brought it to the <laughs> to Dallas and to the clubs, and and uh, I I got involved uh, through MDMA, which uh, was legal. See, I was a Texas lawyer, and at the time, you could get thirty years in jails just for one joint. Uh, so I was uh, on the straight and narrow. I'm a Vietnam vet, been to the Vietnam and back, and still uh, never got involved in the drug scene until MDMA came around. And uh, the, I would not have done it had it been illegal because, uh, you know, your law license and your freedom were kind of important back then. But uh, long story short, I did get involved in it. And it uh, uh, after just one evening of MDMA, it just totally changed my life. And so rather than uh, go back over all that, uh, uh, one thing led to another, but you can go and, and watch that video and it'll uh, <laughs> give you uh, a good impression of how uh, this altar boy became the host of the Psychedelic Salon. <laughs> I never had any experience with uh, with ecstasy, only with uh, ayahuasca and mushrooms. And, but I always had this uh, notion that ecstasy was more like a... Uh, a, a emotional or how you feel, not so visionary. Or... But yeah, I, I never tried it, so I don't know. No, no, you're exactly right. It, it isn't uh, visionary at all, and uh, it's not really even a psychedelic. It's uh, Sasha Shulden called it an empathogen. Uh, it's it. Uh, I I have uh, a touch of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and uh, MDMA is being used to treat it. We didn't know that twenty some years ago, twenty five years ago. We were just. Uh, uh, using it, it, yeah, it felt good. We get together in small groups. That's and you know that's before the rave scene made it really popular. Uh, the the uh, first big dancing use of of MDMA or ecstasy actually happened in Dallas at the Stark Club, and uh, the Stark Club uh, was the they called it Stark music then, but uh, it went to Chicago and became house music, and then. Uh, uh, they took it to London, and and it became the rave scene. So. Uh, in the beginning, we were just taking it in small groups and not dancing with it and stuff like that. And it turned out to be very uh, healing. Uh, and uh, in fact, Michael Mithoffer on the East Coast now has uh, been treating uh, some very severe uh, PTSD patients and uh, actually curing them. Uh, they're in a phase two study now, and soon it'll go to phase three. Plus, it's being used uh, at uh, Harbor UCLA here in Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Grobe and Alicia Danforth are uh, running a study with uh, high-functioning autistic uh, uh, participants who, you know, they're not, they don't want to lose their special aut autistic skills that they have, but they, they would like to be more socially uh, adjusted, uh, more comfortable in social situations. And so there's a study going on to use MDMA to uh, uh, help autistic people too. Now, one of the reasons that uh, the pharmaceuticals and the health industry has uh, not jumped on this bandwagon in a big way is because like Dr. Mithoffer uh, has literally uh, cured a, a woman named Rachel Hope, uh, among many others, uh, with just three 
treatments. And so, you know, the first of all, it's a public domain. It's not, uh, they can't patent it and they can't sell a lot of it because uh, two or three treatments is all you need. You don't have to keep taking these pills. So it's really, uh, it's it's going to be well known in the years ahead as, as a real miracle drug. Uh, what's interesting to me about what you said earlier about yourself uh, being primarily involved in uh, ayahuasca and mushrooms, or that was your entry point, that Back in the 80s, when I first became involved, you couldn't find any literature. There wasn't any, you know, that was before the World Wide Web even. And so there, there was just nothing. Uh, the libraries didn't have anything. The bookstores didn't have anything. And uh, I came across uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, the Yage, Yahe letters, uh, Y-A-G-E, Yahe, which is uh, another term for ayahuasca. And uh, so I read about it and I kept searching for it. It took me over 15 years of asking around before I finally made a connection about ayahuasca, which is weird today because today you can hardly walk down the street without somebody talking about it. So it's made a really big move in, in, in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, ayahuasca in particular has really come to the foreground, whereas uh, you know, 15 years ago you couldn't find anybody that knew what it was. Yeah, that's true. And you mentioned the Yai let letters. When I was a teenager, I, I was reading a lot of Burroughs, but um, Naked Lunch and, and The Junkie. And I also acquired that book, but for some reason I never read it. And then I went on my study of uh, finding out things and eventually stumbled on ayahuasca and had my ayahuasca experiences. And then many years later, I was looking in my bookcase and I noticed that book, The Yagi Letters, and it was all there from the beginning, you know, I right in front of me. That that uh, sort of proves the old uh, saw that people say that uh, when you're ready, it'll find you. And here you'd, you'd actually come across it. And actually, if you'd read the book, you may not have gone any farther because he wasn't a big fan of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know what kind of an experience he, uh, he wound up with, but uh, he, he wasn't a big fan of it. But uh, uh, as you say, when, when the time is right, it seems to find people. You mentioned you, you went to Vietnam was it a trauma traumatic experience? Well, I I didn't have nearly the the trouble a lot of people did. Uh, most of my time was spent uh, offshore in in coastal surveillance and shore bombing and ships. But there were some things that we did that uh, really bothered me, and so uh, you know I I uh, and then I came back and I got really heavily involved in the prisoner of war issue because uh, you know we left uh, several hundred men over there alive that we knew about, and and so I spent years working in that and working with veterans, and uh, you know I can't say that that. Uh, I, I'm anywhere nearly as uh, <laughs> involved with PTSD as a lot of my friends, but it's, it was enough that was causing me, uh, you know, well, before I started uh, uh, doing MDMA, I would, you know, once or twice a week wake up screaming and, of course, uh, my ex-wife didn't like that very much, and uh, so the, the the dreams have gone away now, and and uh, cannabis helps that a lot too. But uh, you know, it, it uh, for me, it wasn't uh, nearly as uh, bad as as a lot of people. It's just that we had to do things that that you know you didn't want to do, and so I have a really uh, deep affection for all of the women and men who, uh, in the armed services who have had it a lot worse than the Vietnam uh, vets did because 
we were over there for a year. You know, some of these people have had four, five, six tours now. And, you know, it's just uh, they can hardly cope when they get back. So uh, things things have not gotten better, but uh, they will get better for people with PTSD once some of these studies are done and the, the government approves the uh, use of it. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Grobe and uh, uh, Dennis McKenna, Terrence's brother, are uh, working on a preliminary study to uh, treat uh, veterans with PTSD with ayahuasca, uh, which is another uh, potential treatment. Uh, uh, and, you know, I know that uh, there's a clinic here in uh, Tijuana that does uh, Ibogaine treatment for uh, heroin addicts quite successfully. So, you know, it sounds crazy. Uh, treating some of these problems with, with uh, so-called drugs. But uh, I think, you know, we, we didn't do research for so many years from, from making it all illegal in the late 60s uh, until now they're finally getting around to doing again. And most of the good research, actually, a lot of it at least, is being done outside the U.S., uh, there's a lot going on in Switzerland, and uh, uh, there's a lot of MDMA research going on in Israel, uh, and other places around the world uh, are, are uh, expanding their research uh, into these substances. But the U.S. now is finally opening up because a whole new generation of uh, uh, bureaucrats are taking over the uh, Drug Administration and things like that, and they're much more open to uh, exp you know having some research done. So I think that. Uh, psychedelics are really going to move back into the mainstream, or not that they ever were, but uh, not for a thousand years or so. But uh, there's going to uh, be so many uses of these medicines uh, for social problems and for physical problems that I think that uh, we're, we're right at the beginning of something really uh, good and new now. I just hope they don't... Uh... For with ayahuasca, for instance, that they, that they like f filtrate it somehow and make it, you know, they pull out some ex some part of it and make that into a pill. Yeah, that's that's the big issue, you know, both with uh, well with all of these substances because uh, uh, the pharmaceutical companies that's how they operate. But uh, like uh, Dr. Grobe and Dennis McKenna are planning on taking veterans down to a. Uh, a site in uh, Mexico or Peru, I'm not sure where, I think Mexico, but uh, to really work properly, you know, you, you can't, you, you know enough about ayahuasca to know that, that it's, it, uh, you can't give somebody a pill, it's, it's a whole uh, involved uh, experience. And so uh, what, what I know that uh, with MDMA, uh, that that uh, the Mitoffers are working on with the post-traumatic stress disorder, they uh, they, they do some therapy with the person ahead of time. Then they have an experience all day and they spend the night there. There are two therapists with them. And, you know, it's, it's not like you just give somebody a pill. And uh, with ayahuasca, which is obviously uh, orders of magnitude more, uh, I guess, powerful, you'd say, as far as the physical and emotional experience, whereas uh, MDMA is uh, very gentle. Uh, with ayahuasca, you would have to... Uh, yeah, do it in some kind of a safe setting. And I know there's a veterans group that are taking uh, veterans to a uh, an ayahuasca church in Florida, of all places, and they've taken them to Peru, too. The problem right now, of course, is you have to go out of the country to do ayahuasca legally, uh, with the exception of there's one one church somehow got approved uh, in Florida that, that uh, can take non-members. Uh, so, but even that, I, I have 
friends who are participants in two of the different uh, formal ayahuasca religions. And uh, from what I understand, it's, it's uh, not close to the same experience as a traditional ayahuasca experience. So your fears, I think, are probably well-founded. And we're just going to have to uh, make sure people stay educated that, uh, you know, this isn't uh, Western medicine that you take a pill and you're going to be cured. This is a, an experience you participate in, you know. With, with ecstasy, uh, MDMA and LSD, um, is there any danger to it if you take it? I mean, like, I, I know about the dangers that the mainstream tells you, but you as an experienced person, what is there any danger to it? Uh, there, there's, you know, I think the, the biggest danger with LSD is not uh, physical, but in, in acting out, you know, you know, physically in in situations if you don't have a safe uh, setting that you're in, because uh, a friend of mine says that the the three things you have to remember when you're taking a psychedelic is that uh, uh, let's see, fire is real, cars or fire burns, cars are real, and the law of gravity is still active. <laughs> you have to remember those things with MDMA. There still hasn't been a lot of uh, human safety studies done. There was a big, uh, you know, bunch of lies that Oprah Winfrey put out by showing this brain scan of a woman that claimed that the ecstasy burned holes in her head, but it was really just an MRI that showed blood flow and did not have holes in her head. Now, you shouldn't take a uh, big deal, uh, a lot of ecstasy because after, if you do, uh, most people will find that it doesn't even work the second day. And if you take a major dose, you're going to knock yourself out for a long time. I did that one time way back in the eighties before we knew anything. I had nobody to talk to about this. We didn't have any experience. And I, I took a, a huge, huge dose. So 10, more than 10 times the recommended dose. And for the next 10, 15 years, it didn't work for me at all. And uh, it, it got, after 10 or 15 years, my brain synapses and all kind of got back to normal and, and it worked fine. I did it two or three times after that. So I don't uh, know that I, I, I haven't experienced anything that I would consider, uh, you know, damage to my, my brain or anything, but maybe if I hadn't taken it, I'd be a real genius, right? <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, you know, the, the main thing that happened to me is that ecstasy just didn't work for me again for a long, long time. Uh, people really shouldn't take it more than, I would say, uh, well, four times a year would be a lot, it seemed like. But uh, the problem is you go out and dance on it every weekend. First of all, and, and I've danced on it all night, too. I love it. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, you're really missing out on most of the benefits of it uh, when you're in a crowd and the music. Uh, in a group of two, three, four people, uh, that's really where it, it, its power comes out. But uh, I don't know that there's been any serious uh, long-term effects. Now, there have been some deaths on ecstasy from uh, people who, and this is strange, they've either uh, not had enough water and they've dehydrated, or they've had too much water. And uh, there have been some deaths associated with MDMA. Uh, 
having to do with too much or too little water. Uh, so it's something that you have to be very careful about. The biggest danger today, in my opinion, is the fact that you don't know what you're getting. You know, that uh, unless you actually know the chemist who made it and trust her or him, uh, you don't know what what you're getting in these pills, you know. And some there's some places I know that uh, at some of the festivals in Europe they're still allowing testing, so you can buy a pill from a dealer there and have it tested right on the spot and and know what you're getting. But from what I understand, a lot of it now is impure. You know, back when I was doing it, there were only one or two sources of it, and we knew who was doing it, and we could trust them and uh, today, you, your your biggest danger is uh, not in taking too much ecstasy, but in taking something you think is ecstasy, which isn't, you know, or it's not pure. So uh, that's that's a real problem, and that's why I've I've really gotten to where I recommend people, uh, you know, cannabis, mushrooms, and ayahuasca, you know, stuff that comes out of the ground. Yeah, most drugs they have a plant. Uh that you know it comes from a plant like heroin and cocaine also comes from plants from the beginning but ecstasy is pure synthetic right uh well that's what people thought but uh, a number of years ago sasha shulgin isolated uh, mdma in a cactus plant and uh it was just a normal household cactus plant that you could buy at a, a nursery here in california or all over the place and uh once he he let that word out, most of uh, <laughs> those things got bought up. But uh, they did. He did actually isolate MDMA in a species of cactus. But oh. originally, you're right. It, X, MDMA was originally patented by I believe Bayer in 1917, 18, somewhere around there. Uh, I believe as a weight loss drug. Uh, or maybe it was something else, but it, it was patented then, and the patent, of course, has expired now. But it's uh, it's been around for a long, long time. But in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, I guess, or '70s maybe, uh, is when Sasha Shulgin reformulated it for the first time in many years. And then he wrote a paper, and uh, a friend of his was a psychotherapist out in uh, Northern California, and uh, he and, and Sasha's little group took it, and they found a lot of use for it. So uh, he he trained, they call him called him at the time the secret chief. His name, he, he's dead now, his name's Leo Zeff. But he trained hundreds of psychologists and, and psychiatrists to use MDMA. And before it hit the streets in the mid-80s, it was uh, widely used for therapy out here on the West Coast. It would be a weight loss drug if it means you dance all night. <laughs> well, actually, even if you don't dance, it does suppress your appetite. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, very nice that way because it not only suppresses your appetite, but makes you feel good about it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny, uh, since you've never used it, I'll tell you that that uh, that was, it was the very first substance I ever used, uh, other than, than alcohol and, and sugar and caffeine. But, uh, I, I used it before I'd even smoked marijuana cannabis, but the, uh, the feeling that most people get and almost everybody that I took on a, on an experience for their first time, everybody says the same thing says, you know, I've felt like this before. And, and it's sort of a light uh, a feeling of lightness that you maybe felt when you were, you know, eight or nine years old or something. It's, it, uh, it really takes you back. And in a way it's a form of a truth serum so that, uh, if you're, if you're in a relationship and you're having issues and you both take it, uh, 
you'll find that you you can be very honest about your feelings with the other person because they're in the same space you are and you you realize that uh, being honest and truthful causes less harm and pain than covering up or lying or whatever and so it acts as a really form of a truth serum that uh, is great for relationships when you take uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca, you, you stay clear in your mind. Uh, do you do that with ecstasy as well, or is it more like being drunk? Oh, no. You're, you're even more clear than you are with ayahuasca or mushrooms. Uh, that, that most people, uh, you, well, my first time having no experience with any kind of substance, uh, they gave me too much because I kept saying nothing's happening, nothing's happening. I was expecting like being drunk or something and and it's not like that at all you're very clear very clear you mentioned palenque norte earlier uh, what what is this and explain a bit more about that okay well there were in palenque mexico there's some mayan ruins and down near those ruins for uh maybe eight or nine years terence mckenna and some of his friends held an entheobotany conference and uh, uh, I went down to several of those. They were they were sort of legendary. They there were two weeks, and they had uh, eighty people each week would attend. And uh, I won't go into all of the ins and outs of it, but it was uh, people from all over the world came. It was it was one of the only at the time, probably the only psychedelic conference in the world. And uh, most everybody that I know uh, or, you know, had read about had been there either as a lecturer or as a, uh, you know, attendee. And then they, uh, when Terrence died, we had one more of those conferences after he died. And and uh, it it just didn't work. He was the main draw. And so the conferences ended. Well, uh, that was in 2000, uh, 2001 was the last one. The next year, when I was uh, coming home from Burning Man, I got thinking and, and uh, saying, you know, Burning Man doesn't have a lecture series. And, of course, <laughs> I was all new to it, and everybody thought, you know, who would want to go to a lecture at Burning Man? But anyhow, at Burning Man, is a gifting society. Everybody gives something. So the following year, my wife and I built a theme camp, and our gift was to produce a lecture series. So uh, I got uh, some friends like uh, Daniel Pinchbeck and Alex Gray and Allison Gray and uh, Eric Davis and people like that, Bruce Damer, to uh, give talks. And so we we called it Palenque Norte, Palenque North, and because uh, we used to sit around the swimming pool in Palenque, and uh, that's where the real talk started. So we formed it on that basis, and uh, we couldn't believe it. It was it was a big hit. So we kept doing it, and and uh, in fact, uh, this talk of Cory Doctorow uh, that I just podcast last week was one of this year's Palenque Norte talks. I, I quit going to Burning Man myself, but uh, uh, Pez, Chris Pezza and a bunch of others have taken up, up on it, and they produced some really amazing talks. And and it became such a, a hit that, uh, well, two years ago or so, that there were uh, like, I guess, eight or nine uh, lecture series all over Burning Man, and uh, they had a whole section in the uh, their guide about it called Intellecti. And uh, so that the the thought of putting on something intellectual 
at Burning Man uh, is was a big hit, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of other people doing it now. And so we have those lectures going on, and and uh, what I'm doing now is uh, they have the lectures in a tent there at Burning Man, and then uh, they've been recorded, and I podcast uh, quite a few of them, and that's where a lot of the new voices are coming out. So we don't leave anyone in the dark. Just briefly, you what's Burning Man? Oh, okay. Well, Burning Man is a, uh, a a festival unlike most others. It started in 1996 in the current location, I think. And what it is, it's in the middle of a it's a dry dried out lake bed in Nevada that uh, nothing grows there. There's no insects or anything. It doesn't support any form of life. It's a desert, a flat. It's it's one of the it's the second flattest place in America, and uh, it's just a dried lake bed, dusty dried lake bed. And uh, a f- well, last month, uh, the end of August, the last week in August, uh, they had seventy thousand people show up uh, and build the city. And it's a major art festival. They, uh, they've had some of the most incredible art that you can't see anywhere else, like, uh, you know, big oil derricks that they set on fire and, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, and and it's, uh, well, it's, it's sort of a no-holds-barred, but it's uh, people think it's, it's wild because, you know, you can be naked and like that. But uh, there's cops there, and, and you've got to be really careful about, especially smoking pot, because they can smell it. So... Uh, it, it's, it's not a big drug festival. There's a lot of alcohol and everything's free. You, the only thing you can buy at Burning Man is coffee and ice and, uh, everything else is free. People give everything away. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I don't like camping. I don't do well in the heat. I don't enjoy the desert and I absolutely love going to Burning Man. <laughs> it's, it's the, uh, the freest place I've ever been. I, I've never felt more free than at that place. But uh, you can go to the web and, and uh, go to YouTube and uh, search on Burning Man, and you'll you'll see a lot of uh, stuff about it. It's it's uh, it it's not like uh, Boom or some of the big festivals in Europe that are are much more uh, ecologically sound and friendly. This is. This is survival. You you have to bring everything in and everything out. You can't even pour your dirty water on the fl- on the playa floor. You have to have a way to take out your gray water and and uh, it, so it's it's a lot of survival involved because they have uh, whiteouts where the <laughs> dust storms come in and you can't see your hand in front of your face for an hour or two and and uh, big winds and you know it's it's it. I guess the way I'm describing it, nobody would ever want to go. <laughs> but it's it's really a lot of fun. But I thought it was a lot about you know doing psychedelics, Burning Man. But you said that uh, there's cops all over the place. Yeah, and well, there's there are a lot of people that do psychedelics. I've done a lot of psychedelics at Burning Man, but it's. Uh, it's not open and obvious. You you can't just run around doing drugs and and they bust people for for cannabis for marijuana. Uh, they even have uh, agents, uh, women agents who are hot little honeys in skimpy suits that'll come up and ask for you, uh, you for a joint, and if you give them one, then you're going to get busted and pay a five hundred dollar fine. You know, it's just a way for the cops to raise money. So that it's and it, that's getting worse every year. It's it's really horrible, but. Uh, you know, once the old burners, uh, see so you, you build what they call theme camps and think of it as a neighborhood in this town of 70,000. And so like the Planque Norte lectures are, are held at Camp Soft Landing that has, uh, you know, a couple 
hundred people, uh, about a hundred of whom have been together for many years, and and they build this city and the infrastructure and the tents and stuff like that. And uh, as long as you're careful, you know, at night uh, when people go out at night, uh, many most of them are on mushrooms or acid or something like that or MDMA. But uh, marijuana is the big problem because people can smell it. Now, you can't uh, openly give away drugs, but you can openly give away alcohol. So there's a lot of alcohol there. Now, you know, it's changed over the years. The first year I went uh, was in 2002. And uh, I think there were like 24, 25,000 people that year. And now there's 70,000. So it's it's gotten a lot bigger and uh a little rowdier. A lot of a lot of young guys come thinking they're going to see a lot of naked women, so they come and they get free alcohol. But uh, while while there is a lot of nudity, my impression has been most of the naked people I saw were fat old men. <laughs> so it's not a it's not a, a voyeur's uh, paradise by any means. It's uh, but it it's it is when you get in with the right theme camps, you can have like the time of your life. It's just amazing and and uh, and and yeah. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of psychedelic use, but it's not open and obvious. You've written a book also, at least one that I'm aware of. Uh, I've written several of them, uh, one called The Spirit of the Internet, and uh, the one you may be aware of is The the Genesis Generation. A lot of the stories in there are uh, based on on facts with names and places changed, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a psychedelic uh, storybook uh, of, of sorts. And what, what this spirit of the internet? What is this book about? I uh, wrote that. I published that. I think in two thousand, and uh, it's it's actually uh, the I guess the short version would be that uh, the internet uh, acts in many ways like a psychedelic drug, and it's about the uh, the spirit uh, that raises rises in people when they become involved in the internet now i you know i wrote it in the 1990s when uh you know the internet was still the web was still fairly new and uh you know i wrote it before the iphone and before youtube and all that stuff but if you go through it now you'll see a, a lot of the things uh that i i predicted in there have actually happened but the only reason i I could predict them is because I was, you know, I was the internet evangelist for a large phone company, and so I knew what was going on to some degree. And uh, so I, I talk about how you can get involved in the internet. Like if uh, there was a time Bruce Damer was doing this conference where he spent like 18 hours online in multiple chat rooms and 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 things like that. And at the end of the time, he he was like you know, high, like he was in an ayahuasca experience that you can, uh, you can equate some of these things, uh, or, uh, make comparisons and, about it. But back, back when I published that, you know, like I say, it was before the iPhone or all that stuff. So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's still kind of a interesting book, I guess. I haven't looked at it in a while myself, but, uh, it's, it's online that you can get it for, uh, I think I've made it free in the Kindle version now, but uh, anyhow, that, that you know, I, I've uh, I've done a lot of writing. I, I haven't published a lot of stuff. I used to be a technical writer too. Uh, when I quit being a lawyer, <laughs> I went to something lower, uh, less intense, and uh, so I've written a lot of technical manuals and, and several books. I know a uh, a guy who lives in Peru, training to be a, a shaman. And he also used to be a lawyer. Maybe there's something about being a lawyer that makes you just want to not be one. 
<laughs> you know, with with the exception of of one guy I went to law school with, every lawyer I know wants wanted either wanted to quit or did quit. You know that uh, I I for one I loved law school. I really enjoyed law school and studying and like that. But uh, actually practicing law is just a is a pain. You know that I had all my own problems, and then people come to me wanting me to solve their problems that took ten years to create. They wanted me to solve it over a weekend and. And, you know, I, I, it just wasn't uh, for me, but uh, I did like the intellectual part of studying the law. And it, uh, it puts you in a good spot where people can't threaten, you know, say they're going to sue you or something. You just say, well, go ahead. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, the, you know how the game works. Isn't it easier to be a prosecutor, maybe? Well, I'm always for the little guys. I could never have been a prosecutor, you know, that uh, uh, they still have to go through and get their law degree. But, uh, you know, I was I was uh, actually mainly in a, a real estate practice uh, back in the 70s in Houston, Texas, when the big boom was going on. But uh, it's just very stressful and, and uh, it wasn't any fun. So uh, <laughs> I got out. <laughs> um, are you aware of this uh, Oculus Rift that's coming or it's out soon? Yeah, I haven't uh, experienced it yet myself, but uh, Christopher Peza, Pez, the guy that took over Palenque Norte from me, is has been one of the testers. Uh, and now he's, uh, I don't know exactly what he's doing, but I know he's spending a lot of time uh, involved with it right now. And so uh, from what I understand, it's, it's spectacular. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, since Facebook bought it, I, I quit paying attention to it. <laughs> uh, well, I think this... It doesn't really matter if it's Oculus Rift, but this type of technology is probably going to change everything as much as the internet because once it reaches a certain level, uh, um, then uh, you know we can have this conversation face to face in the jungle, and uh, you know you can look like a, a lion and I can look like a tiger, and we can sit and talk. You know, it would change our whole social. Um, uh, the way we do do everything, I, I imagine. Oh, I agree. I, I think it's it's uh, whether it's Oculus Rift or one of the others that come in. Uh, you know, it it doesn't matter. It's it's going to just be spectacular when when uh, like you say, we can be sitting in a virtual living room but feel like we're in the living room, and then with a click, we can be animals in the jungle and talking. That you know, when when we first started, uh, uh, I started. Uh, for the phone company helping pr to uh, promote the internet, we the big objection then was, uh, well, this is great if you have a lot of money, but you know there's too many poor people in the world, and and that was a very valid objection that we just kind of ignored and said, well, we got to start somewhere. Well, now with the iPhone or the web phone, I should say that over half of all the human beings on the planet now have access to the internet through their phone. And that's, that's awesome. I mean, the, it's not even a 10-year-old piece of technology. And the web is, uh, what, 1992, and yet half of the people on the planet are connected. Uh, so I see, like what you're saying with Oculus Rift or some virtual technology, I see that being, you know, revolutionary in ways that we can't even predict or think about right now because we don't know what's going to happen. I said once to a, a guy I know that one day there's going to be a person who spends his entire life in the virtual reality. 
And he said that uh, that sounds horrible. And I said, but we already do it now. You're you're right. You know, I just uh, this morning we we uh, went down to the ocean. We walked along the beach in the morning, and uh, down there it's amazing. With it's a beautiful day here in Southern California. The surfers are out, and, and just everything is perfect. And at least half the people on the beach are looking at the palm of their hand with the phone. You know, <laughs> I I just can't believe uh, how how people are 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 immersed, like you said, and and in their minds they're in another world, really. So, uh, and, and I'm not in favor of all. You know, I I don't think that's it's good to only have it that way. I don't think uh, we're going to want to only be in in virtual reality, but it is so tempting, and. People, I just, I, I guess we're taking things for granted the, the, with the speed of change. You know, your your phone gets outdated every 18 months or so. And yet when I grew up, which was a long time ago, there was a, a comic series in the Sunday Funny Papers. And it was Dick Tracy, who was a cop. And he had the leading edge technology of the day, which was, uh, it was a big wristwatch. It was a two-way wrist radio. And he could, this is before walkie talkies or any of this stuff, long before cell phone. And, and I grew up as a little boy dreaming that someday, boy, maybe there'd be something like a two-way wrist radio. And, uh, yet this morning I did FaceTime with two of my grandkids. They wanted to show me what they got for Halloween trick-or-treating last night. To go from dreaming about just maybe having voice communication on your wrist being future scientific or science fiction to being able to do FaceTime right now, that's a huge leap in one lifetime. And uh, the speed with which things are going, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen? I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I can, being a lawyer, I can argue things both ways, you know, and so I can argue the good and the bad, but we just have to accept what is and not, uh, not fight against it, just try to make it work for us. And like you and I are right now here, you're, you're in Sweden, I'm in Southern California, and we're having a a conversation like we're uh, sitting in the next room. I don't remember if it's uh, if it was Terence McKenna's own idea or, or if he was repeating someone else. But I like this concept of we we build the factories and the offices and the concrete jungle in the virtual reality, and then when we log out, we're in uh, you know the Garden of Eden and we leave the Earth more like it used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, that was Terence's, and uh, Fraser Clark did a, a nice riff on it too. But uh, yeah, his idea is. Uh, We'd be walking naked in the rainforest, and uh, then when we wanted to go uh, visit the Louvre, we would just uh, blink, and this virtual reality world would come down from our eyelid uh, computer, and all of a sudden we'd be walking through the Louvre or listening to a symphony in, in uh, Albert Hall in London or something like that, and or going to our, our job or factory. And, you know, we're, we're not far away from something like that right now, for some people at least. So what are your plans for the future? Just to keep doing your podcast or have you any other books to write? Well, <laughs> you know, it's funny you ask that. I, I, uh, 
all my life, you know, I wanted to write, be a novelist, and I'd written a bunch of other books, and and so I finally got this novel out. And I published it in 2009 as an audio book to raise enough money to hire a, an editor, which I finally did. And then a year ago, this editor, or two years ago, this editor and I worked on it for a long time, and finally got it in shape where I was proud enough of it to make it into a paperback. And I thought, oh boy, I'm finally a novelist, and <laughs> and I've got this big podcast audience. I'm going to sell a lot of books. Well, uh, it's been on, on the market now since March. And as of this morning, I have sold exactly 60 copies, six zero. <laughs> and so I uh, have decided that I am not going to be a novelist. I'm not going to spend any more time working on books. I've got uh, a bunch of video projects I'm working on now. Uh, I, I haven't quit writing, but I, I'm not going to spend time writing uh, books anymore because I, people just aren't reading them. They don't take the time to read them. And, and uh, I think little... Uh, 20 to 30 minute videos are, are the, the wave of the future for me. And as far as podcasting, you know, I never intended to do more than two or three. I just want to learn how the, the technology worked out. And now I've gotten to where, you know, I've really enjoyed doing it. I look forward to doing it and I've got all this new stuff. And so I, uh, I don't have any, uh, plans for stopping the salon. In fact, I, I just started our first, uh, uh, forums. You know, I opened a, a, a part of the salon and I, I rebuilt all the salon to some new, new uh, websites, made them a little more modern. And I added forums for uh, people who want to discuss things in a forum. And that's been open a month now. And, uh, you know, there's almost 400 people participating. So I think I'll be spending a lot more time there because I can communicate. You know, I don't don't do well with email because, you know, I get so much spam and stuff like that. Email is not very practical for me anymore. But through these uh, forums, I'm getting in direct contact. You can send private messages and stuff like that. And so I've uh, really had uh, a lot more communication with people who listen to the podcast. And uh, I'll be able to, you know, tailor them, you know, a little bit more for what people are looking for. Although uh, I don't seem to be able to go wrong with McKenna. <laughs> and I, I, you know, like I say, I've got maybe 40 or 50 I haven't heard yet too. So those will be coming out at probably one a month or so because I want to hear them myself. But uh, podcasting and, you know, I'm 73 years old. I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, kicking back and taking it easy. So uh, I spend a lot of time with my two youngest grandchildren who are nearby and uh, that podcasting. And, and I still, for one, love to read. So I, I read a, a book or so a week. But uh, as far as new projects for myself, uh, I'll be putting out a few videos a year uh, of, of stuff I'm writing. But uh, no more books, at least uh, for now. <laughs> but I've heard many of your podcast episodes. And to be fair, you don't really promote or sell your book that much uh, as you could. You're right. And and uh, but you know what? I I used to be in sales and and I don't want to be in sales anymore. I'm I'm doing the podcast because they're fun. I like doing them. And uh, I did the books just because, well, I've always wanted to write a novel. You know, I've done that now. And uh, there's there's three more in that series. And well, yeah, I have to admit, I still am writing them. I can't stop for some reason, but I don't intend to take the uh, time and energy and money to have them edited and all that stuff. But uh, my grandkids will do something with them. But I, I'm excited about these history, uh, these little history videos I'm working on now. And 
uh, you're, but I, I don't like to push and promote things. And, you know, some, some podcasts, uh, that I used to listen to, uh, uh, and, and me, you know, I would thank people who made donations and all, but it was always kind of awkward saying, you know, I wasn't really asking for donations, but people made a donation. I thanked them. And now that we have this little, uh, forum thing, I think I can, uh, run the podcast without, uh, having to do a fundraiser every year. And, uh, I just don't like selling stuff. And, and, uh, if, if if people aren't doing a lot of reading now, I've left the books up on on uh, Kindle, and and you they're they're not you know restricted or anything. So if people make copies and give copies away, that's fine, and and that's what uh, that's all right. But uh, I think the podcast is my main means of uh, communicating with the world these days because I get to say whatever I want. You know, <laughs> it's really nice that uh, you know I I can be a grumpy old man if I want to or whatever, and uh, so I get. I guess probably now that I'm thinking about it out loud here, podcasting is uh, is my medium. Cool. Well, uh, thank you for talking to me. And just before we finish, uh, where is your podcast, and uh, you know where can you buy your books and all this? Uh, you you can. Uh, my podcast is at Psychedelic Salon, all one word, psychedelicsalon.com. And uh, there's links to everything there, a uh, uh, bunch of videos I've done. There's a video about Palenque Norte. In fact, there's a couple of videos about Palenque Norte. There's a 15-minute uh, biographical video of my life that's called From Larry to Lorenzo. And uh, there's, there's plenty of, of stuff out there, but the podcasts are the main feature. And uh, when you click the podcast link, it takes you to a page that there's a listing one line each, 470-some podcasts. And, and, uh, but on the right, you can click a drop-down menu, and it'll show, like, uh, you can go right to the Terrence McKenna archive or the Timothy Leary archive, and, and there's over 200 McKenna talks there. And you can just click on them, and you can stream them directly from the website now. So if you have them on a phone, you can just go to the website on the phone and stream it directly without having to download it or anything. So that's that's kind of a new feature I've added, and, and uh, I think it'll make it easier for people. But uh, that's that's the main thing, psychedelicsalon.com. That's, that's where you'll find me. And that's where also where you can find uh, your books. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, there's a link there, or you can go to Amazon and find them. But I, okay, let me let me tell you something. The 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 uh, the novel, the paperback novel of the Genesis Generation. I wanted to do something for those sixty people who bought one. I wanted to make it make them feel like they really got a good deal. And so on my uh, on my uh, salon or the the forums. The, where people are, are participating. And, and like I say, there's, I had it open for the month of October for free lifetime membership, and there's about 400 members now. And from here on out, students are free. Anybody that's donated to the podcast in the past are free. And uh, other than that, it's a dollar a month, paid you know 12 bucks a year. But if somebody wants to uh, be a lifetime member and pay uh, an extra 10 bucks, I will... I will ship them, drop ship them one of a paperback copy of my novel, which just this morning I changed the price. It hasn't reflected yet on Amazon, but will by tomorrow. I decided to change the price of the book to $350. Now, please, nobody buy a book from Amazon because you get it for 10 bucks from me uh, through the uh, the forums. But uh, uh, I, I moved it up there like that so that the people who actually bought a book from me in these last few months, uh, they have something that, that – uh, 
is not going to be easy to come by. And uh, the, the Kindle version is up there, by the way, for $2.99. So uh, people can read it. It's just the physical paperback is going to be a little harder to come by now. <laughs> cool. Smart plan. <laughs> we'll see how it works, you know. <laughs> well, um, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Hey, it's been my pleasure, and I look forward to uh, listening to your podcast, too. So uh, keep up the good work. To check out the Psychedelic Salon, surf over to psychedelicsalon.com. I will also post links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. And you can also find the podcast on Facebook. Just search for Natural Born Alchemist, as well as on Twitter under Born Alchemist. And now to close this episode, I will play the theme song from the Psychedelic Salon. And it's a song called El Alien by a band called Nature Loves Courage from their album Katal Huyuk. You can find more of Nature Love Courage's music on cdbaby.com, iTunes and Facebook. Just search for Nature Loves Courage as one word. The creator behind this music will also soon appear on the podcast to talk about his relationship with Terence McKenna. Freedom is in the mind.